uh, up north of here, and so I'm part of the uh, part of the uh, unbelieving remnant. We uh, we it was cold. I'll tell you, it's cold. You're, you're very wise to be here. Uh, you should be uh, you should be thankful. Uh, will you turn with me, please, to the twelfth chapter of Romans? Romans chapter twelve. I want to read again the portion of uh, this chapter that we studied last week and then read on into the next paragraph. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual or logical worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have differing gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Now, as I mentioned before, the first two, uh, first two verses of this, of this chapter are perhaps the most relevant and important verses in the New Testament for understanding the nature of the Christian life and how to live as a Christian. What, what Paul does in, this, uh, in these opening verses is supply for us the motivation for acting like a Christian. That's often the question that we have in our mind. Why should we act Christianly? Why should we try to be what God wants us to be? Paul tells us the motivation is God's love. It's because he loves us so much. God carried out this uh, daring rescue. He, uh, He came to earth and he rescued us from our sin. He's our Savior. And his resurrection is the demonstration of his Saviorhood. The resurrection is God's way of of saying this is acceptable. He did it. He accomplished salvation for the human race. And Paul says because that's true, because of his compassion, we ought to serve him. It's the most logical, reasonable thing in the world to do with our bodies. It's the only logical worship that we can offer. When God makes us revelation of his goodness, our response is simply to give him our bodies. Uh, I have a I've always been fascinated by uh, uh, what was called Operation Jonathan. Back in 1974, July the 4th, 1974, British uh, or or Israeli uh, paratroopers and uh, commandos swept down on Entebbe, as you know, and and rescued the the hostages from the airport. 
And uh, in commemoration of that event, the Israelis struck a, a medallion, and I, I bought one at the time. And uh, uh, on the front, it has a quotation from Psalm 18:17. He sent from above, and he took me. I keep this medallion on my desk because it not only reminds me of that lightning-like strike, that daring raid on Entebbe, but it's a good reminder of the, uh, of the salvation that God brought to me. He sent from above, and he took me. Now, that's what salvation is all about. And Paul says, as a result, we ought to give him our bodies. That's the only rational, reasonable thing uh, that, we, that we can do. So that's the motivation, God's love. And the means, then, by which we grow in grace is twofold, as Paul puts it here. First, he says we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We put our bodies where our mouths are. With our mouths, we confess that Jesus is Lord, and then we lay our bodies on the line. We say, in effect, God, here's my body, all the members of my body to do with as you see fit. I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll be whatever you want me to be. And then secondly, we are to be disconformed to the world, unconformed. Rather, we are to permit the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, to conform us to the character of Christ. As Paul puts it, don't be conformed to this any longer to the pattern, pattern of this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, as J.B. Phillips uh, puts it, but rather permit the Spirit of God to transform you, to metamorphize your, your thinking. Now, that's the, the process is basically a mental process. God wants to change the way you think about things because, as Jesus put it, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Our behavior is based upon our thought processes. And the way we grow as a Christian is by permitting God to change the way we think. We begin to think the way he thinks. We think his thoughts after him. We begin to have what Paul describes as the mind of Christ. Now, that's not a, a, it's not a magical transformation. It's, it's a long-term, sometimes very slow process by which he, he, he tears us loose from the world's way of thinking and we begin to think his thoughts. We begin to, to see things from his perspective. Um, uh, our uh, Surgeon General, C. Everett Koop, has mentioned that uh, on a number of occasions, if you could just get people to think differently about their sexual practices, then uh, the AIDS would be eradicated in, in one generation. But the problem is getting people to think the proper way. See, what they want is protection from the disease without having to change their mind. But what God wants to do is change our minds about the way we think. Now, the rest of the book of Romans, as I understand it, is a spelling out of the mind of Christ. It's a way of specifying for us how God looks at things and what our mind will be like when it's conformed to his. And one of the first things he tells us is that if we, if we learn to think the way God thinks, we will think differently about ourselves. That's where Paul begins. We have to learn to think. We have to learn to see ourselves the way God sees us. Think about ourselves the way God does. Now, th this is what he says, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, that's a reference to his apostleship, 
Paul always talked about his office in that way. It's not something that I chose for myself. It's a gift. God gave me this task. For by the grace given to me, that is my apostleship, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. Don't think more highly than you ought to think of yourselves, but think objectively. Now, Paul is not saying here, don't think highly of yourself. Please don't misread the text. There's nothing wrong with thinking highly of yourself. The problem is that we tend, we're inclined to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We need to see ourselves as God sees us. We are created in his image. We're the most nearly godlike beings on the face of the earth. Uh, I've often said that, that really at, at heart, Christians are humanists, if they understand what, what that term means. Once we realize that God has made us something special, it's all right to think of yourself as something special. The important thing is to keep God in the equation, to realize that it takes God to make a man or a woman. And once you see that, as, as the psalmist in Psalm 8 did, then it, it's all right to think that you're okay. We, we are created in God's image. We have the right of choice. We are very special to God. And though we're fallen creations, we've been redeemed by God's grace. We are deeply loved by him. And he delights to give us gifts which equip us to serve. So it's all right to think highly of yourself, to realize that you have a place in God's program. Uh, humility is not denigrating oneself. It, it, it's, it's recognizing exactly who we are and what God intends to do through us. I, I heard a story just uh, this last week about a preacher who uh, uh, delivered a, a sermon, and, and as he was standing at the door at the cl conclusion of the service, a woman came by and she said, Pastor, that was a wonderful sermon. And he, he said with... Uh, uh, mock humility. It was not I, he said. It was God. And she said, well, it wasn't that good, she said. <laughs> <clears throat> you understand what Paul is saying? It's all right to look at yourself and say, I'm okay because I've, I'm a special creation of God and uh, I have been gifted in a certain way by God. I am what I am by the grace of God. The, the psalmist in 139 could look at himself in the mirror and say, I am, I am wonderful. He uses the word that's used in the Old Testament for something miraculous. I'm a miracle. And uh, then he says, I am full of awe. Uh, I am totally awesome, he says, as he looks in the mirror. And you look at yourself, and, and maybe you don't like your body very well. But you need to understand that, that God sees that body, and he loves you, and you're very, very special. And, and what Paul wants you to do is not put yourself down, not depreciate yourself. Don't denigrate yourself. But on the other hand, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. How should you think? Think with sober judgment, he says. Think analytically. See yourself as God sees you. Well, uh, how does he see you? See, how does he see you? He sees you as a uniquely gifted individual. Uh, listen to what Paul says. 
Just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now how should you think of yourself, first of all? Well, a part of the body of Christ. A member of the body of Christ with certain gifts and privileges that belong to that, to that membership. Now, Paul's favorite analogy for the church is the human body. And I've often thought, if you want to see what the church is like, uh, don't uh, stand out here on Eustick and look at this building. Uh, stand in front of the mirror and look at yourself. And that's the way the body of Christ is. It, there's, there's a unity. There's one body. You're, you're, not, you're not multiple bodies. There's only one of you. And yet you have many members. So there is, uh, there's diversity within the, the membership. Uh, the, the members all do different things. But there's also unity. And the members, though they're different, all serve one another. Have you ever thought about that? Each member is a little bit different. The eye doesn't do what the ear does. And the feet, they don't do what the mouth does. They're all different. As you look at yourself in front of the mirror, there, there are parts of your body that are presentable. There's the face, but really the face doesn't do much for you. It just is there. It's, it's the means by which we identify you, but it's not real functional. You could do without a face. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, you'd have a hard time doing without your big toe. You, if you didn't have your big toes, you'd fall over on your face, see? They'd have to call the tow truck. <clears throat> Sorry. That's what we used to always say to our kids when they'd stub their toes. Quick, call the tow truck. <laughs> or what, what, you know, your autonomic nervous system, it functions, and you're not even aware of it, and your heart beats, and, and your lungs work, and... And those parts that are within that no one ever sees are, are functional. They're, they're working for you. They're serving you. Um, have you ever stopped to thank your kidney? <laughs> we, we, we take our kidneys for granted. Kidneys are really ugly things. We used to have a cat that would only eat kidney. And uh, it was my job uh, to cut up the kidney. And uh, I've never seen my own, but I assume it looks just like all the other kidneys that I've cut up. And, and they're very, very ugly. But my goodness, do we, do we need them? If you didn't have a kidney, you'd, you'd be yellow as a canary bird. You'd look awful. Uh, and that's the way our body is. You see, there are all these parts within our body that are functioning, often unseen, not thanked. We're not even aware of them. But they are absolutely essential. And Paul says that's the way it is with, with the body of Christ. We're all different. We're all different. We tend to gravitate toward the, the more prestigious, we call them, the more prestigious gifts. But that's not God's intention. They're differing members, as, as Paul puts it. Um, I have a friend, Ron Ritchie, who's... Uh, pastor down at Cole Community Church. I was on the staff with him for about 18 years, and he's one of these very creative uh, men. You never know what he's going to do next. And 
he was teaching on this subject once to a group of high school kids. And he just had a baby the week before. Roddy, his youngest, had just been born that week. And he, he, took a, he took a beach ball, a white beach ball, and he painted a blue iris on it and a black pupil. And, and, you know, and it was kind of bloodshot. He had some, some blood vessels on it. And he, he wrapped it up in a blanket and he tucked it under his arm. And he brought it in there on Sunday morning to the kids. And he said, I, I just want you to see my baby. And, and all the girls went, ooh, you know. And, and then he unwrapped this horrible-looking eye. And the kids were, ugh, that's gross. And he said, yeah, exactly. That's the whole point. This is not a baby. This is an eye. And what a, what a terrible caricature of, of a body if it were all one eye. But he said that's, you know, that's often the way we think. We, we want this prominent position within the body. We think that, that everyone has to be doing the same things. And God has an entirely different way of looking at, at us. We're all different. Everyone is different. And uh, the differences are God-given differences. The, the differences are what he calls gifts. Now, we need to understand what these, uh, what these gifts are. Uh, Paul puts it this way. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. That's what's different about us. I mean, we're all different in terms of ethnic background and education and, and culture. We're different in those ways, but, but the fundamental difference in the body of Christ is that we have different gifts. Now, we have to understand this concept of gifts. A gift is a God-given capacity to serve the needs of the body of Christ. I want to say that again. That's, a, that's my definition of the word spiritual gifts. A gift is a God-given capacity to serve the needs of the body of Christ. Now, we have a lot of gifted individuals here in the congregation. We have some gifted musicians, some of whom play in the, in the uh, uh, symphony orchestra. We have some gifted athletes. We have a young man that, that jumps over seven and a half feet. We have some people that are gifted at bow hunting. We have you know, all sorts of gifts, gifted cooks, gifted uh, singers. Now, that's not the kind of gift that Paul is talking about here. A spiritual gift is something entirely different. It's a God-given capacity to serve the needs of the body of Christ. And those gifts are specified for us here in this list that follows. Now, as I understand this list, uh, this, is, this is a sample, a random sampling of gifts. This is uh, suggestive, not exhaustive. I think there are a lot of gifts, some of which uh, may not even be uh, uh, given to us in, in the New Testament. There are at least four different lists of spiritual gifts uh, in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 12, here in Romans 12, in Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, and you read those lists of gift and, uh, gifts, and some of them don't uh, coincide. They, they tend to overlap, and the list uh, is different in each case, which leads me to think that it would be very difficult for us to, to, to draw up a list of, of gifts and say this is... 
this is the list, and there aren't any more, and you have to find yourself here. I, I just don't think that that's, that's true. I think God has an infinite variety of gifts to give out. And knowing God, is, as, I, I, as I hope I know him, he is a lavish giver. He, he doesn't just eke things out to us. He pours it on. And so I'm inclined to think that people have more than one of these gifts. You probably have many. Now, he gives us a sample. These are the kinds of things that, that are given to the body of Christ. Uh, he, he says the first is prophecy. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. What does he mean by prophecy, the gift of prophecy? Well, some would say it's simply the gift of preaching. But for myself, I don't think so. I think the gift of prophecy has to be defined by uh, the Old Testament use of the term and the way it's used, as a matter of fact, all through the New Testament. Otherwise, we have to redefine the term right in the middle of, of the Bible. Now, uh, if you want to know what the gift of prophecy is, is, is like, read uh, Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18 uh, explains for us what the gift of prophecy is. Uh, here is the setting. Israel was up on the plains of Moab, and uh, they were getting ready to go down into the land of Canaan, and they were likely to run into false prophets, people that would say, we have just heard from God. And Moses wanted to prepare the people to distinguish between false prophets and, two, and true prophets. And this was the question they raised. How can we know if someone is a spokesman for God? It's a good question. Someone comes to you and, is, and they say, I just had a word from God. You are to move to California tomorrow. And I say, uh, are, are you sure that's a word from God? Yes, I got a word from God. You are to go. How are you to know? Maybe that is a word from God. How are you to know? Well, um, uh, Moses uh, told Israel precisely what, what they should do. They're a set of uh, specs that they should apply in each case. Number one. Is this person a Jew? Interesting. Paul points out, remember in Romans 9, that it's through Israel that the oracles of God were given. Must be a Jew. Secondly, they must receive direct revelation. This is not a matter of studying the Bible and then making proclamation from that study. Uh, God said, this the prophet, I'll speak to the prophet the way I spoke to Moses, mouth to mouth. In other words, we would say face to face. God spoke to Moses and he said, in effect, uh, Moses, read my lips. Now you turn around and say exactly what I said. And that's what Moses did. He stood before God and God says, this is what I want you to tell Israel. And Moses turned around and verbatim he delivered that message to Israel. Didn't ad hoc his way through the message. It came directly from God, mouth to mouth. And third, he had to be able to predict the future with absolute accuracy. Never miss, not even once, had to be able to hit every time. So a prophet had to foretell, uh, pardon me, had to foretell. He, he made proclamation. He was a preacher, but at the same time, the mark of his authenticity was that he predicted the future with 100% accuracy. Now, let me give you an illustration of how that worked in the Old Testament. There's a fellow named Micaiah, one of my favorite prophets. I love to preach on Micaiah. He lived during the time of King Ahab, who was a bad king, wicked man. 
And he and Jehoiada, he was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the, kingdom of, uh, the, the king of the southern kingdom was a man named Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat and Ahab went to, they got together, they got their armies together to go to war against Syria. And uh, uh, Jehoshaphat said to Ahab, Ahab, are you sure this thing is of the Lord? They were going to attack the city of Ramoth Gilead. Ahab says, oh yes, I've heard from the prophets. So Jehoshaphat says, well, uh, I'd like to hear from the prophets. Would you bring the prophets in? They, a bunch of false prophets came in. They said, if you go against Ramoth Gilead, you will prevail. One of them put on a helmet with, with bull's horns and he went around goring everyone, saying this is what you're going to do to, to Syria. Jehoshaphat said, no, wait a minute. Isn't there anybody around here who is a prophet of Yahweh? And Ahab says, oh, yeah, there's this one fellow. His name is Micaiah, but he never tells me anything good. And he's locked up down in the, in the jail. And Jehoshaphat says, let's hear from him. Actually, what he said is, you don't say. Let's hear from him. So uh, the jailer went down to get Micaiah, and he says to Micaiah on the way up, don't tell the king anything bad. He's in a bad mood. Just prophesy good. So Micaiah comes up and he, uh, up to the uh, king in, the, in his chamber, and he says, uh, you, you, you go, go ahead and go against Syria. You'll prevail. And Ahab smelled a rat. He said, now, wait a minute. This fellow never agrees with my prophets. Tell me the truth. And Micaiah said, I saw Israel scattered as sheep, having no shepherd. And it made Ahab mad. He said, all right, throw this guy back in the dungeon. Feed him on bread and water. I'll take care of him when I get back. And Micaiah said, if you make it back, then God has not spoken. And he turned around to all the people and he said, Listen, you people. And then they dragged him off to the dungeon. And you know, you, you know the story. You know what happened. Ahab and Jehoshaphat went off to battle. And in the thick of the battle, some Syrian just twang, just shot an arrow up in the, you know, shot an arrow into the air and it came down, kachunk, guess where? Right in a chink in Ahab's armor. And he died. And forever after, whenever Micaiah spoke, people listened. <laughs> like the fellow that crossed a parrot and a lion. Didn't talk much, but when it did, people listened. <clears throat> now that is a prophet. And I tell you that long-winded story simply so you will understand that, that prophecy is something unique. It is not preaching. It is predicting the future. It is forth telling, proclamation, but it involves prediction. And in the Old Testament, it must come from an Israelite. Now, it could be argued that today, since there is no Jew and Gentile but the church of God, it could be a, a, any Christian, Jew or Gentile, male or female, but it would have to be someone who, who received direct revelation and then announced that revelation and who could predict the future. So, for myself, I don't think there are any prophets today in that sense. They were needed in the early church before this canon was complete, before the collection of New Testament writings was completed. But now that we have the New Testament, there are no prophets. So interestingly enough, the first, list, the first gift on this list is that of serving. If we're looking down through this list in terms of, of the New Testament era, we have differing gifts. If it's serving, let him serve. Isn't that interesting? That's one of those unseen, unknown gifts, just quietly serving. 
The, the word comes from two words, dia, which means through, and kanas, which means dust. Someone that passes through the dust, someone that stirs up dust. It was used of a household servant in, in the New Testament era, of someone who went around dusting off the tables and just quietly served and did the sort of menial, unseen, unnoticed tasks that, that make everything work. The people that set up the chairs, the people that run the sound equipment, the the, the, whoops, the folks that are involved in the helping hands ministry, the, you know, they, they bring in meals to people that are ill. And, and uh, the, the care corps, the men that take care of single parents and fix their cars up and, and mow lawns and fix, uh, fix the plumbing. And, it, it, and it's just those quiet acts of service that people do all the time that no one ever sees. No one's going to write you up in Christianity today. They're not going to cheer for you on Sunday morning. You probably won't even get a thank you note. But it's that quiet ministry of service that it keeps everyone else going. See? You happen to pass by someone's yard and, and you know that they're, they've been sick for a few weeks and their yard is looking, it's overgrown with weeds. And so you just go home and get your lawnmower and, and you cut the lawn for them and pull the weeds out. That's the gift of service. And Paul says that's a special gift. And if you have that gift, he says, for goodness sake, serve. Use it. If it is teaching, let him teach. It's interesting that that should be second in the list because that's the one we tend to to glamorize. Teaching is simply the capacity to say again what the apostles said. It's the ability to take the scriptures and, and repeat what the prophets and the apostles have already said said to us. It's the ability to make the make the scriptures clear and understandable. If it is encouraging, he says, let let him encourage. Uh, my that's a that's a wonderful that's a wonderful gift. It, it the word means someone who moves in alongside to give you a hand. Uh, John Barnes has an expression, prop, prop someone up on the leaning side. He, you know, I've heard him use that expression many, many times. And when someone's leaning over, you, you, you prop them up on the leaning side. It's interesting. It's the same word that's used later in Romans of God himself in chapter 5. It, it says, may, God, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves. And then in the verse that precedes it, it's the word that, that refers to the scriptures. The, so that through the encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope. That's a high and holy calling. If God has given you the gift of encouragement, then use it to encourage others. We have a woman in our church from whom I get little love notes every once in a while. You have to understand, she writes everybody love notes. It's not just me, and you all know who I'm talking about. And uh, it just seems to hit me at a time when I'm, when I really need it, some little encouraging word or uh, a word from her dog killer or, or uh, something that just, I don't know, just kind of perks you up. And then there's another person I know who's always writing thank you notes, just kind little, little words of encouragement. And my goodness, how, you know, that's such a help because there's so many problems in our lives we all have and we're all struggling and someone comes along and just, Gives you an encouraging word, reminds you of God's resources and His adequacy, and and the fact that He He's here and available to us, and and that's so that's such an encouragement. Contributing to the needs of others, uh, that's giving money, uh, just to put it simply. 
Uh, that's the word that's used in, in Ephesians 4. Uh, Paul's, uh, uh, Paul's injunction to the thief. He says, don't steal anymore. Rather work with your hands so you have something to contribute to others. Work so you can give your money. Uh, and, and he says to do it generously. That's one possibility, one possible translation. Another is with simplicity. It's a word that's also used in the New Testament for, uh, uh, for a simple act. In other words, don't make a big deal out of it. Uh, don't give with strings attached. Don't be like the Pharisees who had to blow the trumpet whenever they gave. You know, don't toot your own horn, our Lord is saying. Just give. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Just give. And, and you don't necessarily have to be wealthy to have the gift of contributing. There are people in this congregation who don't make a lot of money, but they, they've learned to live on very little, and they just love to give, to, to support missionaries or to help people in need, and they don't even worry about whether they, they get a, a tax deduction. If they, if they can't get it, they just give. That, that's what Jesus means when he says give, or what Paul means when he says give with simplicity. Uh, if it's leadership, if you're a leader, then lead diligently. Uh, the gospel does not remove hierarchies. It softens them. There, there is still, uh, leadership is still necessary within the body of Christ. The word means someone who stands before others. And if you have an unfront, uh, upfront position of leadership, then Paul says, uh, that's a gift. Don't let it go to your head. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Realize that's a gift that's given to you and use it diligently. Uh, one of the Proverbs says, uh, Every man will proclaim his own goodness, but a faithful man, who can find? Faithfulness is in such short uh, supply. If you're a leader, Paul says, exercise that leadership faithfully, diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Showing mercy is, uh, as the name would, as the term would suggest, is taking pity upon the helpless. These are the kind of people that are always taking in stray. Someone shows up in town and they need a place to stay, and they open their homes and their hearts. And, or these are the kind of people that just love children to death, and perhaps they can't teach and they they, they can't uh, uh, do anything else with children, but they can go. They can be a teacher's helper, and they can move in alongside and give encouragement to to the children. Their hearts are filled with mercy for the weak and, and the helpless. Now, th- these are some of the gifts. Just some, that's all. Paul's not trying to give us an exhaustive listing of gifts here. His point is this. If you are given the gift of service, serve. Did you get that emphasis? If you are given the gift of teaching, for goodness sakes, teach. If you, are, if, if you are given the gift of, of mercy, then start showing mercy. Uh, to put it in our modern day idiom, get off the dime. Get with it. That's what it means to make your body available to God. You see, start using those gifts. And you say, well, I already know what my gift is. How can I use it? Well, uh, you, uh, there, there are some conferences that you can attend. You, you, you pay $150 and you go to a conference and they'll analyze 
your gifts that you can fill out a questionnaire and they'll tell you what your gift is. But um, uh, I'd like to tell you what how you find out and you can save your $150 or better yet, you can contribute your $150 <laughs> to the to the Camp Scholarship Fund for this summer so our, some of our kids can go. To, I'll give it to you free even. Uh, I'll tell you how to find your gift. Again, just look at yourself in front of a mirror. How, how did your hands learn to function? How did your feet learn to, to support you and balance, balance you? you? You just, uh, nobody had to teach you. You just start using them. Start picking things up with your hand. You know what? Your mother didn't lecture you on the, the advantages of an opposing thumb. And, and it, you know, the, the, one of the unique things about human beings and apes, I suppose, is that, that they have opposing thumbs. And they can pick things up like, no, your mother didn't. Do, you just started, you just picked it up. That's all. You, you started trying things. And it started working. Uh, I, I taught my little granddaughter how to throw. The other day, she's one year old. This week, she she is unquestionably one of the smartest children that ever lived. <laughs> and uh, I, she was over at the house, and I put her in her the patio chair, and I sat in the chair opposite. And she had a little soft uh, toy, a little doll, and I tossed it in her lap, and she'd giggle and look at it. And I'd pick it up, toss it in her lap again, and she giggled and looked at it. And then after a bit, oh, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 minutes, she picked it up and looked at it, and then she handed it to me. And I took it out of her hands, and then I threw it to her. And then she picked it up again and handed it to me. And after about another 15 minutes, she, she reared back and bounced the thing right off my head. <laughs> and everybody died laughing and was watching this whole, whole procedure. And, you know, and I, I could have... I, you know, I, she doesn't throw like Joe Montana, but she does very well. She now, now every time I throw her something, she throws it back. See, she's got the hang of it. How'd she learn to do it? No one lectured her on doing it. I didn't tell her. You know, you bring your hand up next to your ear and you snap it off and you do this and that. She just picked it up. See. Now let me encourage you. Let me let me tell you. One thing, for absolutely for sure, you have a spiritual gift. No one was behind the door when the spiritual gifts were handed out. You have at least one, probably many. How do you find out? Just start, start doing things. You see a need? Meet it. Someone needs, uh, needs help, then offer help. Someone needs a word of counsel. Just tell them what you know. Uh, a Sunday school class shows up that needs a needs a teacher. Just start filling in. Don't don't worry about how it goes. Just just start teaching. Uh, when Stuart Briscoe was here, he made the comment that in his church they have a motto: if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. And and I I really had to laugh when I heard that because he's exactly right. If a thing is worth doing, just just do it. Just do it. And you'll discover after a while that you either have the gift of doing it or, or you don't. And if you don't, then try something else. But you don't need to worry. You, you'll find out, and the rest of the body will be able to, they'll be able to uh, reinforce your possession of, of that gift or your lack of possession. It's okay. It's just a gift. It's something that God has given. It's not something that you've earned. It's not something that makes you anything special. 
It, it, it's something that God has given so that you can begin to serve the needs of the body. And, of course, that's, that's the key to the whole thing, wanting to serve. Uh, that's what we're here for. We're here to have our needs met because we want to hear the word taught. We want to worship God together. We want to hear from one another and be encouraged as others use use gifts. And so there's nothing wrong with wanting to have our needs met. But basically, we're, we're also here to, to meet the needs of others, to serve. We have to catch on to that. I uh, uh, heard a pastor this last week talking about a member of this congregation. He... he uh, he was at a grocery store pushing his cart, and this woman came the other way pushing a cart. And there was a flash of recognition as she went by, and she said, Oh, oh, Dr. So-and-so, she said, I think I ought to tell you that we do not attend your church any longer. It's a very large church. And uh, he said, Oh, I'm very sorry to hear that. He said, I, I, I'm sorry I haven't noticed, but uh, you know, we are quite large, and I... I wasn't aware that you had, oh, yes, she said, we've left. Both my husband and I have left. And he said, well, look, can I ask why you left? And she said, yes. She said, our needs were not being met. And, and he said, well, I, I'm really sorry about that. Did you ever tell anyone that your needs were not being met? And she said, no, no. He said, well, we certainly would have liked to have known. But, but he said, have you ever thought of this, that you really don't go to church to get your needs met primarily you go to church to meet needs. My, what a wonderful way of looking at coming here on Sunday morning instead of coming here to listen to someone talk for 45 minutes. I can't think of anything worse, worse than that. Come to church in order to find a need to be met, to, to hear the word proclaimed, but also to minister to someone else in need. Now, there's one thing more I, I, I want to say before, before I, uh, we're, we conclude, and it's this. Paul says that we are to function according to the measure of our faith. And what does he mean? Well, he means that faith is a gift. It also is a gift. Uh, my question would be, what do you believe? What do you believe? Well, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. Those are some of the most difficult things that I can think of to believe. What else do you believe? What do you believe God can do with you? Can he use you to, to teach a, a group of children in Sunday school? Well, I, 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 yeah, I can believe that. Can, can he use you to cook a meal for someone who's in need? Sure, I can do that. Can he use you to go over and repair the carburetor of some woman's car is a single person. Sure, sure, I, I can do that. Start where you are. Start where you are. Jesus said faith is like a mustard seed. It starts the tiniest of seeds, and it grows into a, an enormous bush. That's how our faith grows, as we believe that God can do some small thing, and we count on him for that small thing. We discover he did it. He did it. He used me. And then our faith grows so that we can we can take the next step, perhaps a greater step of faith. Let me tell you a story. Our time is gone. We'll have to forget the hymn. Uh, <laughs> David has his book down there. He's ready to go. <clears throat> Just stick with me for one minute, okay? I have a friend who lives in Laguna Beach. Dennis and I were talking about this notion of a measure of faith this last week, and I'd forgotten all about this guy, and it came to mind. 
His name is Mike Montgomery, most ordinary sort of man you've ever met. And uh, Mike used to, uh, he lived up on the side of the hill, one of those A-frames. Uh, if you've driven through uh, Laguna Beach, and you've seen the houses up on the top of the hill. And at the bottom of the hill where his office was located, and there's a school in between. And, and he walked by the school one day, and his heart was really touched for those high school kids. And he began to pray that God would reach the hearts of those kids. And to make a long story short, he began to walk around the perimeter of the school and pray for them. And, and he knew two high school kids in town, that's all. He invited them to come to his house, and he was, he was real uneasy and didn't know how this was going to work out. Didn't know how, if he could relate very well to high school kids, but he invited them to come to his house. And they just started praying for the school. He knew they were Christian kids. They weren't leaders. They weren't athletes. They were just, you know, just ordinary kids, that's all. And they began to pray for that, for that uh, campus. And then after a couple of uh, months... Mike invited them to invite a couple of their friends to join, a couple of their non-Christian friends, and they started a little Bible study. And, and there were four of them, and then there were six of them. And about uh, six or eight months after he started that, that Bible study, he invited me down to speak to his group of high school kids because he really didn't know what to do with them. And I walked into a living room, and there were 85 high school kids jammed into his living room there to hear the gospel preached. That Bible study became the only extracurricular activity regularly scheduled on the school calendar. The principal of Laguna Beach High School met Christ. One of the city councilmen met Christ because his kids did. And the gospel spread through that, through that uh, high school largely as a result of a man who was just willing to venture himself. He just had a modicum of faith, just a little bit of faith, but he was willing to believe that God could use him with a couple of kids just praying about a high school, and he just took one step at a time, and, and God showed him what great things he could do. I just want to encourage you. want you to know you have a gift. Begin to use it. Let's pray. Let's stand, shall we? we pray? Gracious Father, how good you are to us to give us what we need. You call us to serve. You tell us that that's the only reasonable uh, worship that we can engage in, and then you give us just what's required in order to serve. How good of you, Lord. We thank you for that. Grant to us now the, the faith to believe that you can, can do exceeding abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. We put ourselves in your hands at your disposal. We ask you to use us this week. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. Help us to believe these truths as you've given to us. Help us to act upon them. Thank you for your strength, for your indwelling strength that makes all things possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.